The In Search of America podcast, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. Music by Keith Medley at keithmedleymusic.com. Episode 26, From Sedona to El Paso. This is Monday, September 18th, 2017. I left Sedona, Arizona two days ago and drove through to Tucson, Arizona to spend the night, regroup, and then hit the road to continue on to El Paso, Texas. The drive from Tucson, Arizona to El Paso, Texas was really a fascinating drive. I have heard over the years from numerous people who have made the trip primarily driving cross-country and taking I-10 that it was a dreadfully boring experience, but I must disagree. I found it to be a fascinating drive. For quite some time along the journey, the landscape remained much as it had been in Sedona, which is a great thing. It was these enormous red boulders and red mountain faces. And then it changed. It started to evolve into what I think of as a normal color, a tan or a beige color of the boulders. But through these transitions, at times I was making extreme elevation climbs and descents. I'm talking about 2,000 feet or more. And you would wind up and then wind back down. And it was truly spectacular. And after, I don't know, it was probably uh, two or three hours, I came to a place called Bumblebee, Arizona. And once I reached that area, the landscape changed again and kind of significantly. And even though I was still coming through what I consider mountain passes where I'm winding up and down through elevation gains and elevation descents, the landscape changed to one of what I consider a true desert with the tall cactus that were sporadically placed all over the landscape. After I finally made it around Phoenix and got a little bit onto the outskirts, I was able to get onto the I-10 and continue my journey east. Now the journey was relatively flat. There were still some elevation gains and elevation descents, but for the most part, the mountain ranges were off to my left, and eventually they were off to my left and to my right and into my distant front. As I drove along this section of road, I was reminded of something that I had seen time and time again on this journey, and it was something that really embraced for me the sense of Americana, and that was a train, a freight train. So many times on this journey, I have seen freight trains, and they're colorful, they're almost colorful mosaics that stretch horizontally across the horizon, and there they are just moving across the landscape. And for whatever reason, and again, maybe this is just for me, but it felt so comforting. It felt so much a part of the landscape and so much a part of the culture of America. And ironically, I have not stopped, not even once, to make a photograph of this scene. So as I was driving along the I-10 and going, oh, I don't know, it was, I guess about 81, 82 miles an hour, I 
grabbed the camera and I put the window down, which was a great thing to do because I didn't realize how refreshing the air was. I expected it to be really hot and muggy and it wasn't. It was actually kind of cool and it felt great coming through, so I put the other window down. But anyhow, I held the camera in my right hand and put it over my left shoulder and just photographed this train that I was passing. And again, it was so colorful. It was oranges and blues and whites and reds, and they were just put against this earth tone landscape, but with deep blue skies and white clouds. And it was just spectacular. Much further down the highway, in fact, it was about eight miles west of the New Mexico border, still in Arizona, I came across a town called San Simon, and I had seen it off to the left as I was driving east, and something told me I need to get off and explore this town. It was that gut feeling again. So I got off the interstate, made my way over the interstate, and then back west on a back road, and I came into this town, and it was... I don't know. I don't know the word for it. I want to say amazing, but it wasn't really. It was mind-boggling. At first appearance, and even the last appearance, the town seemed completely desolate. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just truly how it felt. When I came into the town, there was no movement whatsoever. No one was out on the streets. No one was in their yards. No one, period, was out except for one older gentleman that I happened to see working under the hood of his pickup truck. Aside from that, and then there eventually there was somebody that was pulling out of their driveway in their pickup truck. But aside from that, there was not one person that I saw, not a man, a woman, a child, a dog. I didn't even see a bird. It was just complete stillness as if some wall of radioactivity came through and just annihilated the town and left the building standing. It was indeed the strangest sensation I have ever experienced anywhere. I mean, I have lived in jungles and I have lived in deserts. I have lived in the most remote regions of the world and never have I felt a desolation like this. I must admit that I have a great reluctance to talk about this because surely the town can't be that way. But for whatever reason, it was. And every house, not every, but almost every house that I came across had a trailer slash camper in the yard, sometimes more than one. But these campers, these trailers, didn't look like campers and trailers that people used periodically for vacation, but rather that someone was living in them. Yet that kind of didn't make sense because there was a perfectly usable house right there. Again, it was the strangest, strangest experience. So I got out and I made a few photographs because I, I had to record this for posterity, if nothing else, and to prove to myself down the road that this place really existed. It wasn't something out of like an episode of Twilight Zone that I saw when I was four years old. This was real. But my curiosity has peaked as well. I want to go back and find out what this town is all about. I wanted to that day, yesterday, but there was no one to talk with. 
And I figured I wasn't going to knock on anyone's door because if they are staying indoors for whatever reason, they pretty much probably don't want to be bothered. So I let it go. But I spent about 20 minutes in the town driving through the streets in and out of, of, of different little areas. Now, again, aside from the man working on his truck and the person pulling out the pickup truck, I saw no signs of life. Nothing. As I was driving out of town, off to my left, I saw these large agricultural machines. I'm not even sure what they were, but they were sitting in the middle of a, it wasn't even a field, it was just a large area of barren soil. And these machines were sitting there, either abandoned or broken down or both, and they were sort of just corroding and decaying in the dry desert air. So once again, I pulled the vehicle off to the side of the road, got out, crossed the road to photograph these agricultural machines. And again, the feeling of desolation was so palpable. Yet once I got back in my car and I drove down the road just a short distance, maybe about a tenth of a mile at the most, again, off to my left was a grove of trees. And I'm assuming they were either oranges or lemons or limes or, or grapefruit, a citrus fruit tree. But there they were, just this large grove of trees growing out of this, what seemed to be a very depleted soil. So again, I now have evidence that my perception, my speculation of San Simon is completely off base, completely out of whack. Because if it were this desolate, if the soil really was this depleted, as depleted as I assume it is, then these citrus trees would not grow. They would not flourish, yet they were. Back on the I-10, I drove through to Las Cruces, New Mexico, where I stopped just to take a quick break from the road and have a cup of coffee. As I neared the town of Las Cruces, Again, another mountain range, and I think these are called the Franklin Mountains. But there was this mountain range, again, stretching across from my right to my left or my left to my right in front of me. And once again, it was just a spectacular landscape. I finished my coffee quickly so I could get back on the road and make my way to El Paso before it got too late. I was already losing an hour going from the Pacific time zone to the central time zone. As I reached the outskirts of El Paso, I was truly stunned. I was shocked to see something that I never expected. And I don't know why I didn't expect it. Because I've heard about this time and time again. We all have. But to see it without being prepared for it truly shocked me. Off to my right, while still driving on the I-10, was Juarez, Mexico. Now, it wasn't so much a shock that it was there, but I expected it to be off in the distance, far off in the distance, but it was there. It was just right next to me, so close that it was as if I got off the next exit and turned right and drove a few hundred yards, I would be in Juarez. But it wasn't the fact that Juarez was there, that it was that close. It was what I saw, and that is the disparity between the living conditions there and the living conditions off to my left 
of El Paso. The construction of the buildings and the houses that I saw built on the hillside across in Juarez were indicative of what I have seen construction-wise throughout Mexico. Buildings that are made from cinder blocks and then covered in a concrete, and for the most part, they leave the rebar sticking out of the top because when they can afford it, they tend to build another story on top of that. It wasn't that that justified the disparity that I saw or sensed or felt. It was that these buildings were, to a large extent, in disrepair. But it was also the landscape. There was no color. There was no vegetation that I could really see from where I was. It was just, again, a type of desolation. Now, granted, it wasn't the same kind of desolation as I experienced in San Simon, but still, it seemed to be an impoverished kind of desolation. But what struck me the deepest is imagining living there on that border, looking across into El Paso and seeing the opulence, or at least what would be considered opulence compared to what they have, and seeing that day in and day out, and seeing people on the American side living well and living what at least appears to be prosperously, and seeing that from the perspective of living without prosperity. And I understood in that moment why people from that side of the border are willing to risk it all to come across for a chance at a better life. As my mother always told me time and time again, she would say, son, there are two sides to every story. And there are certainly two sides to this story, this story of immigration. And that is not something to be debated or even talked about in this podcast. But it is something that is real and is something that is very topical, especially now in our political climate. I have spent time talking with several people who live here. I have also talked with several people, more than several people, who once lived on the other side of the border, lived in Mexico, and came here legally, and are now employed here and living here in the United States. I talked with these people about the immigration policies. I talked with them about building the wall, and I was surprised at what I was told. For some people who have lived here for generations and who live along the Rio Grande River, they are opposed to having the wall. Now, granted, they want some form of border protection, but as one man told me, if the wall comes through, it's not going to come along the actual border, which is the middle of the Rio Grande River. But instead, it's going to come inland a bit, which is going to cut straight across his property. And worst of all, it's going to cut right through his family's cemetery. Also, as he told me, when this wall comes through, what it will do is it will cut off the river from Texas. It will cut off access to the river and it will cut off access to the water for the Texans. It will leave it on the Mexico side of the border. But he also told me that one of the problems they have now that there is no border protection in, in many places, especially across from places like Juarez, is when the cartels start to fight against one another, 
a lot of the cartel members, especially those being defeated at the time, will make their way across the river and into Texas. But then that brings the crime element over here, even though they're coming to hide out, it still causes violent problems for people living here along the river. But for the most part, people who have lived here for generations, as well as people who have migrated here legally or are now living here, are all in favor of some kind of border control, but not really a wall. One of the things that I have learned about El Paso is it is very much about local establishments, local art scene, local restaurants, local taverns. And last night I went out to one of these local restaurants, a place called L&J Cafe, the initials L, the initial J Cafe. And it's not far from downtown, probably about eight minutes or so. And I was blown away. Now, I have come to realize that in the past several podcasts, especially the ones dealing with this western leg of my In Search of America journey, they have dealt a lot with food. But as far as I'm concerned, food is an essential, a critical part of any journey, whether it's a journey through one's day or a journey such as this where I'm covering several states and thousands and thousands of miles. So back to the L&J Cafe. This place originally opened back in 1927, but back then it was known as Tony's Place. And during Prohibition, when they weren't able to sell alcohol, they had slot machines. Then later it was renamed to L&J Cafe, and now it's the fourth generation of family that runs it. The atmosphere was great, but the food, wow. Again, I had enchiladas. That's my go-to Mexican food, I know. But I had the chicken enchiladas with the green salsa. And oh my gosh, it was amazing. And with that, it came with you know the, the traditional chips and salsa. But there's salsa. I've never had a salsa like this. It wasn't chunky. It was just like a, like a tomato sauce. But oh, the flavor was phenomenal. And, and, and the chips themselves, I don't think they were store-bought. These had to be homemade. This morning, I got up early and I drove down to the border crossing area. And my original thought was that I would drive across or at least walk across the border into Juarez. But then as I thought about it and I thought about my time frame for today and what I had to get done, I decided not to. But instead, I just kind of drove around and walked around that part of El Paso. And it's really interesting because that part of El Paso down right there near the border is predominantly Mexican. The shops and the people are predominantly Mexican. And that's where you can buy fabrics, traditional Mexican fabrics. You can buy Mexican souvenirs. But that's also where the Mexican people shop. But then up here, which is only, oh, I don't know, probably about, uh, you know, a half a mile uh, inward towards downtown, is it's different. It's an it's a mix, like you would expect, of the Mexican culture and the American culture, and it's blended together. And it's really just a great feel to be able to transition in a short distance from one to the other and back again. In the storefronts down in the Mexican area were, as one would expect, brightly colored and freshly painted, and a couple even had murals painted on the side, and it just added such a great flavor to the neighborhood. 
I have truly become enamored, or at least intrigued, I think a little of both, with El Paso. It's a place that I want to come back to and spend more time and really investigate it far deeper than I was able to in these two days. I will head out of El Paso tomorrow morning, and my original plan was to drive straight through to Big Bend National Park, which is about five hours. But today, as I was reviewing the map and my itinerary as far as driving, I realized that Marfa as well as Terlingua are both en route to Big Bend National Park, and those are two locations that are a must on this trip. I have wanted to go to both of those places for so long, and I have to go this time. So I'm going to rearrange my itinerary a little bit and stop in Marfa. I'll probably set up camp or set up lodging somewhere in Marfa because I need to spend at least a couple of days there, and I need to go to the observatory just a little bit north of Marfa, and again, to get down to Terlingua as well. And then there are other little places that I found uh, that I need to explore as well. So again, there's been a change, but what else is new into my itinerary? And then once I finish there, I'll head down to Big Bend National Park. I think I'm still going to go there. It's depending on time. I'm really stretching this out and, and I need to rein it in on, on the time element a little bit. But to, at least I'll get to Marfa and Terlingua for sure. And then we'll see where it goes from there. The In Search of America podcast, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. Music by Keith Medley at keithmedleymusic.com.